the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, everybody. Dennis and Julie. Dennis Prager and Julie Hartman. Hello, Julie Hartman. Hello, Dennis Prager. Or, apropos of Dennis and Julie, shalom, Dennis Prager. That's amazing. You know, people write to me at julie at julie-hartman.com. See, I throw it out at the beginning of the show. Now, now I don't have to say it at the end. But they, they write to me and they address me, shalom. They do? Yeah. And then they sign it's off, adorable. shalom. It's funny because I'm the Jew and I almost never say it. And you're the non-Jew and you I always love it. say it. It's so fun. Yeah, and as you yeah. know, I say Shabbat Shalom on Mondays. Correct. Which only a handful of people appreciate how ludicrous that is. But that's what makes it funny. Completely understandable. So you said this is like number 90-something. Yeah, I think 92. Did we? 93. I, I, I know I've gone over this, so I apologize. But have we ever missed a week? No. People We've don't never realize how remarkable that is. Oh, it is given really all the travel. Given the travel and I the do. filming window that we have, yeah, we only have three hours that, to film. That's right. And we're, timeless. We're, and... We take this really seriously. Well, also we love it. I, that's correct. That's fair to say. As as we've said on this show, I take this uh, very seriously. I know that it is work, and I'm always reading and thinking about, you know, topics and refining my brain for the benefit of this show but i don't when i'm here filming i honest honestly don't view it as work that is correct well we we i'm only hesitating because i don't want it to sound again like you know we're just saying how wonderful what we do is but we i'm not saying it in that way i'm just saying how enjoyable all right we both love it so a lot has happened it is amazing if we last recorded a, a little over a week ago, it is astonishing, in, at least in, certainly in my life, but I know in yours as well, but especially in mine. So I've been to New York. I spoke at Columbia University. And I'm telling you, I wish everybody who's worried about America, and I am, believe me, really worried, but I wish people could have the positive experiences that I have all over the country. Hmm. I met about a hundred Columbia students and I, I spoke to many of them, many of them for a while because afterwards we went for pizza and I took questions and I was there for two hours plus then two hours afterwards at the pizza place. Just really good. And I think even number of males and females really, you would have liked them. And it does it does give you hope, but my, my thinking was they must be so lonely on their campus. Did you ask them? Yeah, and, and uh, I should have asked them more. Uh, now that you think of it, but I was just happy to take their questions, and right. I didn't have. I, I felt that's what I needed to do most, rather than get information for me. 
But the implication is yes, of course. There were no, this is what's interesting. Do you know that I've spoken to many campuses and uh, usually there are protesters. It's meaningless. It's not violent. It's not even screaming. It's just usually signs, you know, Dennis Prager, white supremacist or some other nonsense. And uh, at Columbia, what they did at Columbia, though, you don't know this, so you'll find I do know this. You told me on the phone last oh, night. Oh, yeah. They, they, what they do is they sign up and then don't show up so yep. that those seats are taken. Yep. They, well, they did that at Trump rallies. I remember on Instagram seeing people posting, buy your tickets for the you know Tuscaloosa Trump rally. This was in 2016 and even in 2020. And then have they, they wanted it so that all these seats were... Take words. So here's a good question: Does our side do that? I feel <laughs> I'm always trying to be fair to both sides. Yes, that's what I and asked it as a question. I am constantly, constantly asking myself if I do that effectively enough and commonly enough. So, I, but this answer I'm going to give makes me sound really partial. I don't think our side does that. Yeah. Oh, my I question. I My question was an open question. I know, not but I just want to make it clear to the audience. I don't think our side does it either. I don't just blindly go. Well, of course, our side would never do such a thing. Our side has a lot of issues. I, that was just the point I wanted to make to, to the audience. Yes. But I don't think we tend to do that. We don't tend to so, protest. Oh yeah. Well, that's a good point. No, it is yes. a good point. Yeah, like, you're like right. we we don't. If if because because we believe in free speech. There is a there is another reason. This really goes to the heart of a lot of things. The macro and the political are not as important. They're not as life filling for the average conservative as so for true. the person on the left. That is so true. Well, since you obviously know what I'm saying, go ahead. Well, Leftism has become a religion. Even if you look at, I mean, let's look at the, the, the language that they use. They insist on a kind of purity of language and thought. That's religious. They have, I mean, even when you hear on the left things like, I'm manifesting. Don't you hear people say that? I'm manifesting that Biden will win or I'm manifesting this. That's sort of a... That's sort of a substitution for praying. I actually am thinking about writing an article giving a list of all of the colloquialisms and things that we hear on the left that are very religious. But the point is, the the left is also religious in the sense that it's kind of like a unifying ideology for your entire life and the way that you conduct yourself in every realm of life. The whole idea that the personal is political is a kind of, I think, religious thing. Like politics seeps into every realm of life and i think it's a way to give meaning we all yearn for a higher purpose in life and attending protests crusading against what they believe to be evil that is bigoted antiquated right-wing conservatives that fulfills a kind of void that religion used to fulfill that's that's the part that i meant but there's but there are also aspects of it which are truly in addition to the meaning part i think like the way words are used in no, rituals. Uh, yes, that they exemplify. A, uh, yeah, I agree with you, of course. It, it, I've, I've called it my whole life secular religion. But it's that this 
fills them, we ha- we are filled already. See, when you again, I want to remind everybody. I'm reacting to your comment. Well, why aren't we out there protesting right. all the time? And and getting preoccupied with this stuff. That is not the inclination of the conservative. The inclination of the conservative is really a much more peaceful existence. I get meaning from my family. I get meaning from my church. I get meaning from my synagogue. I get I get meaning from my hobbies. I get meaning from my friends. I get meaning from all the holidays that I that I have. But none of that well, friends presumably are available to anybody, but by and large, that's not part of the left. The left doesn't get meaning from uh, from being a member of the nation, in this case, America, but it could be any nation. Doesn't get meaning from God. Doesn't get meaning from religion. Doesn't doesn't get meaning from hobbies as much. They, I'm sure that leftists have hobbies, but this is this is a very important point. I, I can speak for me. My interest in r- political activism is zero. <laughs> me too. Me too. Well, we, we talk about that, that although we're conservative commentators, we really don't care that much about politics. We care about values and how values is affecting politics. Well, also, I'll go further t- just to tell you about you. The fact that you named your own podcast Timeless Timeless is the opposite of the political. Exactly, and and as you know, you, you are happy. You are happier to talk to the author of a new translation of the Iliad than oh, to talk to somebody about who has the best chance for the Republican nomination. That's what I do. Oh, half, I would even say over half. Sean may want to weigh, weigh in on this. I think about sixty to seventy percent of my content on Timeless is not political. I did a show the other day on Christmas art. Now, of course, some would say that that is political, but that was kind of my point earlier about how left in leftism, well, of course everything that, yeah. is political. Well, only to them it is. To well, you of course. It isn't. But I, I looked through these different paintings, starting Renaissance paintings. We looked at holy, you know, nativity scenes, and then we went to com- the commercial. We looked at. Uh, paintings of Santa Claus. We looked at uh, Norman Rockwell paintings of families around Christmas time, and it wasn't. It was just let's enjoy this art and let's talk about which which paintings we like best and why. I did show I did a show on how advertising has changed. I've done shows on flags. I had a magician on the show. There's so much more to life. I'm happy I raised this subject because it, it allows me to explain us and conservatives and me specifically more i rue next year as a talk show host because so much is about the political i envy countries that have a six-week period before elections when when candidates are chosen and and there's campaigning and until six weeks i think in some democracies even uh, there is actually there are laws about when you can start campaigning. I mean, really? Yeah, I, I, I'm I'm obviously pro free speech, but I envy them. Right. That this this uh, bathing in the political uh, is is not ubiquitous. Is not universal. Let's put it that way. Maybe ubiquitous is not universal. And I I just dread it. Do you know? I'll, this you'll find of interest. 
I recently went to a city where I'm on the radio, and the the turnout. I was with, uh, in fact, I was with one of my colleagues who's quite popular. All my colleagues are popular. And the turnout was disappointing. It's not important to say which city. It's truly irrelevant to my point. And I, you know, my preoccupation is always with the question, why? Yeah. Why didn't more, I think, I think two, two to 300 people came and 600 should have come. And I, I was thinking, why? And I asked. The, the head of the station that brought me in. Why do you think? And they just weren't sure. They were thinking, well, maybe it's because of, uh, of the of inflation and people are watching their money. And I, it's not like they were charging a lot, so I, I didn't buy that. And then I I came up with the answer. It took me a while. the The topic that they advertised was political. Oh, interesting. And I said, that's the reason people are not as preoccupied, even conservative activists are not as preoccupied with politics as you think they are. I said, had you brought me alone, and I'm not advocating that, I love being with my colleagues, but had you brought me alone to talk on happiness or on men and women, you would have gotten a bigger turnout than two of us on the the race to the White House a year before. You know, it's so interesting. I hear that, like that that term, the race to the White House. And I get this this kind of like Pavlovian alert, like this, you heard me. I went, ugh. Because, yes. we're, because we, we, the market is oversaturated to- totally. with that stuff. It's it's just everywhere. And that's, that's one of the things I love so much about the conservatives I know, especially you. They, you guys have such a, a rich, vast life outside of the political realm. I mean, that that is our life, right? It is. What, what is the political is actually my a very major tiny part. work of the last ten years is a Bible commentary. I know. Well, that's what I said to you, and I said, "Isn't it interesting?" Because you have these works on happiness, a Bible commentary, the why the Jews are nine questions people ask about Judaism. Bill O'Reilly, another you know big conservative, That's guy, right. you he made has this point. all of these books That's on right. the yes. Salem witch trials, the killing right. of Jesus. Yes, the, you know, I mean, it's the, the assassination of John F. Kennedy, and I right. often encounter these individuals, and they, and it really and blows that's me Bill away. O'Reilly, who is I known know. for political thought. I know. And I, I encounter these individuals and I go, I mean, Andrew Clavin is another one who's written, written, I mean, books on his faith. He's written books or he's written, um, what, why am I forgetting the fiction books? <laughs> he's, he writes and does so much outside of the political. Yeah. So and these are three dimensional exactly. textured Who, people. It's a very interesting question. Who are their equivalents? We so let's say so. There's Shapiro and and there's Peterson and there's Prager and there's Rubin and the, and there's Peterson's another good example. He does right. right. No, no, no. So I'm just saying that's my point. So, well, it's it's part of my point. Let what to get to my point. I want to ask a question. Maybe you have the answer. Who are the left wing equivalents of those five names? I don't. I don't know. It's an interesting question, isn't it? Because it is. if I anybody says, "Give me the leading conservative political thinker," oh, Victor Davis Hanson obviously right. would be. I, I always afraid to mention names because I know Larry Elder. I'm missing somebody who, who's who's terrific. But that's inevitable, and it doesn't matter. It, it just happens. So I can't. I don't know who they are. 
and and I I do this for a living. Who are the left wing public intellectuals? Robin DiAngelo, Ro- Ibram right. X. Okay, Kendi, okay, so fine. But the, Rachel Maddow, right? And it's all it's all una. It's all monophonic, to use a a, a, a music uh, word from my from my hobby of uh, of musical uh, equipment. Uh, it's monophonic. It, it's all race. Uh, Robin D'Angelo is white supremacy. What what else do you know her for? Is she writing right. a Bible commentary? Is she is she doing a study of Homer? Is she writing about art? I, uh, Ibram X. Kendi, race. It, 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 they don't care about the non-political. It, it, their lives. That's. I want to go back because it's easy for the listener to miss the the overwhelming point. The political is their life. Yes, everything is political. The light bulbs you buy, the clothes you wear, the people you hang out with, what you consume on social media, the shows. Everything is political. And it fills their life. I have to keep going to that. Right. That's my the point I want to make. Well, one of the things I really appreciate about Bill O'Reilly's books, and I have consumed them. I mean, they're, they're, once you read one, you just buy all the rest of them. But my two favorites are Killing the SS and Killing the Witches. About The, the first one is about the— How many of them have you read? I have read—I've read four. Mm-hmm. Um, and— Killing the SS is about um, the Israeli government's heroic, if we can even, I mean, that is an understatement. uh, Capture of Eichmann. Capture of, yes, Adolf Eichmann and the other uh, Nazi hunters who went to South America to try to find Dr. Joseph Mengele, the Angel of Death, and and, uh, Klaus Barbie and all these other Nazis who escaped to to South America. That one is one of my favorites. And then Killing the Witches is another favorite. I actually interviewed him on my show about Killing the Witches. And what I really appreciate about those books, among many other things, first of all, they're they're, they're such rich historical novels, and it reads like a thriller. Not novels. Oh, sorry. Yes, books. Thank you. Um, I don't know why I said novels. Uh, What I meant to say is it reads like a novel. That's right. There are books that read like a thriller. They read like a novel. Um, But you you learn so much. But I also appreciated that he didn't spin it into like a commentary on the modern day. I think he very appropriately— He doesn't even spin it on a commentary on that day. He tells you the story. Exactly. It, he he really kept it in its time, and his his vocation is I'm going to tell you what happened. It's really Period, well done. Period. End of story. That's right. And you know, so I'll give you. So I just said it a few moments ago that on Timeless, I recently did an episode on Christmas art, and one of the things that I said because we started off looking as I as I told you on uh, at nativity scenes, we looked at three Renaissance painters' depictions of the nativity, and then we went to the present day and we looked at two modern artists uh nativity works salvador dali and henry moore dali and moore's nativity depictions respectively literally look like paint thrown on a canvas it's like a modern take on the nativity henry moore's is really dark you can make out a lantern but you can't really figure out what's going on in the scene and then salvador dali's is literally like he took black paint and just threw it at the wall and is calling it a nativity scene And one of the comments that I made was, in modern work, it shows the conceit of the artist because the artist is really making the painting about them. Those two paintings are not about the nativity. 
B, I call BS on that. And I know we live in this, you can't criticize everyone. No, no, that is a really good, good point. It's not about the nativity. And right. honestly, it's insulting to even go through this charade when that it's about the nativity. you see Michelangelo in the Sistine Chapel, you don't think about Michelangelo. Yes, because the artist takes him, his or herself out of it. Michelangelo right. and Correggio and St. John and the other... I forget the third Renaissance painter I, I had. The- there are many good reasons to buy gold and silver. Bank failures, digital currency volatility, emerging market countries trying to topple the dollar as the global reserve currency. Julie Hartman here for Amped Coin and Bullion, Dennis's choice for buying precious metals. If you ask Amped owner Nick Rovich to simplify the case for precious metals, he'll tell you when President Roosevelt recalled the gold in circulation and paid people with paper money, they received a $20 bill for a $20 gold piece. Today, that $20 bill won't even fill half of your gas tank, but the gold piece is worth about $2,000. Which would you rather own? Now, let's simplify the reasons to use Amped Coin and Bullion. Nick's been in the industry for over 42 years, and he's proud of providing transparency and fair pricing to build trusted relationships. If you're interested in buying or selling, call Nick and his team at Amped Coin and Bullion, 1-800-221-7694, AmericanFederal.com, AmericanFederal.com. But the painters I showed on Timeless, the Renaissance painters, oh, Botticelli, uh, Botticelli's Nativity was another one. They're making it about the scene. They are trying to deploy their work to glorify God. It's not about them. With Dali, he's trying to give you the hot, modern, cool take of the Nativity. But by doing so, he's inserting himself in the work. So to bring it back to Bill O'Reilly, Bill O'Reilly in this analogy is the Botticelli. Right. He's, the he's subject just, is the subject. The subject is the not, subject. Not me. And today we see these these readings right. of history that get spun to the of modern day. Sort if you day. don't worship God, you worship yourself. Yeah. It it, it 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 comes down in many ways to that. But you're so right. I'm thinking about the area I know best is music, and no, when, when somebody analyzes a Beethoven symphony, I'm, I'm just thinking of how accurate what you're saying is you're more into art than into music. So I'll use the music analogy. When somebody analyzes a Beethoven symphony, they, they don't think about Beethoven. They think about what he is saying Mm. about life, about meaning, about struggle. Well, you know, Beethoven here is, is talking about the, the inner conflict of, you know, whatever you want to say, but nobody looking at, um, you know, who's the, the painter, the fa- most famous one who threw uh, paint cans from his uh, from oh. his ladder, uh, the American Robert Florzak is listening and yelling yes. it out. No, 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 it's painful. Uh, it, it's just me and names because uh, he's such a famous name. All right, everybody listening knows except us. Anyway, when you look at these, and, and they go for millions of dollars now, it, nobody said, what is he saying about life? Yeah, well, There's, we, he's saying nothing about life. We need to call it out for what it is, and it's incredible. It's 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 narcissistic, really. Yes, and you see these. I mean, I I have stopped watching television a because I've become so addicted to books, and b because you watch these shows, and the shows are no longer there. I mean, Sex in the City is the 
greatest example of this. I watched the old Sex in the City that was, I don't know, was it in the 90s and early 2000s? I was not even born slash a baby when it was running on HBO originally, and they just did a reboot. And those of us who are fans, you know, it's a chick flick show. Those of us who are fans of Sex in the City were so excited for the reboot. The reboot, you should actually analyze it on your show. It is one could think that it is satire. Grace Curley is a Boston radio host, a conservative. She, she's on the Howie Carr Radio Network, and I listen to her sometimes. And she has this great segment on her show called Woke or Joke. And she reads something, a headline, and she has people call in and guess if it's woke or joke. It's just a fun little segment that she does. The Sex in the City reboot could honestly be a candidate for woke or joke because it is so woke you think, oh, God, there's, there's no way – that, that the showrunners are actually putting something oh, out like this. That's amazing. One of the main characters becomes a lesbian and divorces her husband and, and gets with this, ver- with this very radical left-wing uh, non-binary person. And they're showing... I mean, they have all these, like, sex scenes. It's just... It's very crude. Um, one of the daughters of another uh, protagonist is trans and has a they mitzvah instead of a bar or bat mitzvah, a they mitzvah. Wow. Um, there are other examples that I'm forgetting, but because I only watched a bit of it a year ago, but you look at these modern pieces of art and shows, and it's hearkening back to what we're talking about, that the political is suffused everywhere. And, but, but again, what, what, what I hope we're conveying is that I think this is narcissistic because I'm not turning on sex in the city to be proselytized to. I'm not turning on sex in the city to be reminded of my white privilege and, you know, of the, the, the plight of the trans in America. I'm watching sex in the city to be entertained. And it's just they so... They can't help themselves. They can't help themselves. No. And they're inserting right. themselves into this work. And it's no longer about the viewer. It's about them and the, and the political message that they're going to hit you over the head with. And that's what the Oscar. That's why people don't watch the Oscars or the Emmys anymore. They don't care because they are religious. They these are true believers. If you said to the Oscar people, the, those getting the awards and, and making presentations, just want you to know that every time you make a political comment, that ensures that next year we have fewer viewers. They will say we don't care. Right. It's for the and cost. they really don't care. I know. See the the. I don't doubt the sincerity of bad people. <laughs> this is, this is, that's why I've never, I don't believe in my life, I have used the term sincere as a compliment because it is irrelevant if you're sincere. Completely irrelevant. That's such a Dennis Prager line that you don't use sincere as a compliment. Right. I, I don't use, by the way, I don't use it as, as, as an insult. It I is know. a useless term. Who Hitler was sincere. Stalin was sincere. What does it mean? And good people are sincere. It is. It 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 means. It's like you breathe. You've really influenced me on this subject. I now. I used to talk about people's intentions. I really don't so much anymore because you're right. It doesn't matter in the end as much as your actions do. The great battle. I've had two major battles ideologically in my life. One is to teach people that the end of Judeo-Christian values is the end of civilization. Some people have bought it. Many have not. 
I think it is now more obvious than ever when you have campuses erupting right. on behalf of the Nazis of our time, Hamas. Right. There is no difference between them. There is one difference. Hamas announces it wishes to exterminate uh, uh, the, the Jews, whereas the Nazis hid it. The Nazis hid the Holocaust to the best of their ability. The, these uh, video it. They're proud right. of, of butchering Jews. And the other uh, is that behavior is all that matters. Mm-hmm. And it, that this one is a harder one, uh, ironically, because whereas in the first case, I obviously have religious Jews and Christians on my side. On, the, on behavior is all that matters, I don't have a lot of Christians on my side. And these are people I adore. This is not a knock on them at all. I'm just explaining. I had a phenomenal talk with Eric Metaxas uh, on this, on his show uh, at the National Religious Broadcasters Convention, the Christian Broadcasters, uh, last year, or earlier this past year. And it was to his credit, and I just had an evening with him in New York City just uh, just this past week. Uh, the to his great credit, he listens. He so pursues truth that as hard as it was for him as a committed, believing Christian to hear, because Christianity, and I totally understand why, based on the New Testament, is is very much how you think is is a an issue, is a moral religious issue, and. When I get up and say, no, it isn't, how you act is the moral religious issue. It is hard for a lot of Christians to hear that, and I, and I respect that fact. And I say it with love and respect, but those are, but ironically, or if maybe, maybe ironically is not the word, but it might be, the left hates that much more even than Christians hear it and they may not agree, but they don't hate it. Mm. But the left hates it because the left is entirely about, it is not at all about what did you do? Why don't they hate communism? Because they meant well. Oh, the fact that they slaughtered more people than the Nazis by a factor of 10 is, uh, uh, yeah, about about a factor of 10. Doesn't doesn't mean anything. It means nothing. And they don't care that you're the godfather of a gay couple's son. That, or that that's you have a perfect gay example. They they, no, that's correct. Your your public position on gay marriage that's matters right. far more to them than your actions. That's right. Right. Your yes. Well, you know, it's it's hard because, as I just said, you've influenced me a great deal on this subject, caring more about actions than thoughts. But I do think there. One of the strengths of Christianity is how they advise you to direct your thoughts. For instance, something that I've been thinking about a lot lately is this concept of turning the other cheek and praying for your enemies and essentially wish, wishing the people who hate you all the best. I'm sure you've had to, to grapple with this a lot. I mean, being in, in the public eye, and you are many times over more in the public eye than I am, but I'm even seeing this. You know, you get... You get people writing to you just with vicious, vicious things, calling you names, and it's, and then seeing the things that they're advocating for. I just sometimes I look at these individuals, especially online, and I feel contempt for them. And so I'm try, not that I would ever, you know, wish something horrible on them, but I do feel contempt and hatred. And so I've been trying to kind of go a Christian route and go, I'm gonna. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to wish them well. I'm going to 
not I'm, I'm going to turn the other cheek and not let this fill me with evil and, and hatred well, i think wait, that's a wait, lovely wait, thing okay but I'll, I'll finish and then but, but that's but that's important it I think Christianity at times goes too far, and, and and I'm the living, walking embodiment of this. I'm very culturally Christian with the amount that I flagellate, self-flagellate for my bad thoughts. So I, I know this better than anyone. Sometimes it goes too far, and it should focus more on behavior than on thoughts. But I'm not going to say that the focus on thoughts doesn't matter because, because figuring out how to direct your thoughts – influences your behavior as you argue in your happiness book that having that having gratitude and a grateful mindset is going to make you happier and direct your life in a better way well this is the this is the other huge subject the first one was the the end of god the bible and judeo-christian values and this one is about the the deeds versus thoughts issue. First Mm -hmm. of all, let me make clear, there is a thought commandment in the Ten Commandments, do not covet. Mm. I do remind people that it says do not covet, not do not lust. Hebrew has two different words. I am, uh, by the way, I looked it up, and Jesus did not say whoever lusts after another woman has committed adultery with his heart, but whoever covets another woman has committed adultery with his heart. The difference is immense. An entire theology has been built, understandably, but erroneously, on on a translation rather than on the original. And what is the difference between covet and lust? It's very simple. The Tenth Commandment says, do not covet your neighbor's spouse, your neighbor's house, your neighbor's ox, your neighbor's uh, workers. Nobody lusts after their neighbor's house. You can't lust, let alone their ox. Hopefully not. not. Yes. So... the, the issue isn't lust. Uh, the, the the man who lusts, I mean, this is, I know this is its own Pandora's box. I'm okay. I, c'est la vie. I, I, I have to be able to answer to God, Dennis, did you tell the truth or did you hide it for popularity? So that's how, that's how I animate. That's how I'm animated. I am much... I, I trust much more the guy who lusts but knows I will never commit adultery because it, 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 it violates God's will and it violates my marital vows and, and it hurts my wife and hurts my marriage and hurts my family and it is just, you just don't do it. As opposed to the guy who is preoccupied with thinking about not lusting. Between the two, I am, I am more likely to trust the guy who is behaviorally self-controlled than the guy who is thought self-controlled. Yeah. Okay. That's so. I, I may be wrong, but that's I. I, I, I believe that deeply uh, in in the in the the person who controls their behavior. Look, f- forgive me. I, I just want to develop this with one more example. So, uh, so Alan Estrin is the most self-disciplined human being I know and I say this with complete admiration, he's extraordinary. Among other things, he runs miles uh, every morning. And, uh, and and he eats only healthy food. So when I ask him about the food, for example, so Alan, do you miss sweets? He goes, Dennis, if I could, I would have an entire apple pie. Not a slice, 
not a half. Alan, have it. Okay. <laughs> He's so, done so much. So does Alan control his thoughts? No. He lusts after apple pie. Hmm. Forget the sexual arena, which is filled with with uh, emotion and, 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 and religion and a whole host of things. Let's take food. If you If you lust after food and don't eat it because you know it's not good for you, why is that not admirable? It's very admirable. Right, exactly. And, and Now, you could say, well, isn't the ideal that you don't even lust after apple pie? Well, that's ridiculous. Well, that's my when, point. When, oh, no, well, I okay. hear you. I totally hear you. I agree with you entirely. And I think at times Christianity goes too far by policing your thoughts. Your, ultimately, your behavior is what should be policed. And I agree with you that like, I admire... Uh, I admire an alcoholic for not drinking far more than I yes, admire than my friends who They're, do dry yeah, January right. because they have they are thinking about yes. it all the time and they are battling something and yet they behave in a certain way despite that battle and that is what makes them very noble. I hear I totally hear you on that. However, I do think I I think that Christianity does go way too far with this, but I think one of their strengths is again the way that they encourage you to direct your thoughts not in every arena but but especially with the, with the kind of the worldview of you're going to have temptation you're going to have people treat you unfairly you're going to have people be mean to you you're going to have challenges you're going to have to do things that you don't want to do and you need to be able to overcome that and be the best version of yourself that Christ would want you to be. I just look at that, and I know you agree with me on this, and it is so antithetical. In fact, it is literally the reverse negative image of the kind of thinking that leftism encourages. Left, leftism says, a la Maxine Waters, get in their faces. If you, if you have an enemy or if you have someone you know, with whom you disagree, create a crowd around them. Make them feel unwelcome. If you have a temptation, oh, well, part, you know, living life is fulfilling your, you know, you have, you have a right to be happy. You have a right to feel seen. You have a right to feel heard. If, if you don't, if you want, you know, if you want that chocolate cake, don't let the fat phobes tell you not to eat it. It's literally the, the way that Christianity instructs you to think is so the opposite of the way leftism instructs you to think. And for that reason, I really appreciate it. Look, the number of wonderful people Christianity has made means it must be doing something right. (laughs) So I take that as a given because there are so many wonderful human beings I know personally and know of who are Christian, especially today. The only thing that I would react to is your earlier comment. So, for example, pray for your enemies. Mm -hmm. So that's an interesting comment. So I've discussed this with Christians, and I've asked, what, what is it you want me to pray for? Yep. And generally the response I got is, pray that they change their ways, that they, that pray that they repent, or, or even pray that what is ultimately good for them happens, but good for them might be incarceration, which I, I find that's a, that's a leap. But the first two, I get it. But for example... My view, when when Jesus says, turn the other cheek, okay, uh, I explain it, and it's interesting because I will be doing uh, with Jordan Peterson again uh, the, the, the four Gospels. 
Ah, that is so cool. Yeah, that'll be fascinating. Really, really cool. So I have always understood that as micro. In other words, in my life, and by the way, I I have more or less tried to live that. People in my life who have hurt me, uh, I don't know about turn the other cheek. I don't say now strike me on the other cheek, and I don't even think he meant that. But I, I did not declare war on people in my life right. who have hurt me. But there is a time to declare war. Yes. I, so what, do, what should I pray so I'll, I'll ask you, since you raise the issue yep. mm-hmm. a, a, as something you find very admirable, so should should we, should the good people of the world, and specifically should Jews, and specifically should Israelis, pray for Hamas? <laughs> yes, and, I do. And the prayer should but, be, but here's a... what should the prayer be? I hope that they wake up to their evil and cease their evil. Okay. We so we all want that. Right. Okay. But right, but until they do that, do I have any other prayer? My pillow is excited to bring you their biggest bedding sale ever just in time for Christmas. Get the Giza Dream bed sheets for as low as $29.98, a set of pillowcases for only $9.98. Rejuvenate your bed with a MyPillow mattress topper for as low as $99.99. They also have blankets in a variety of sizes, colors, and styles. They even have blankets for your pets. Get duvets, quilts, down comforters, body pillows, bolster pillows, and so much more, all with the biggest discounts ever. They are also extending their money-back guarantee for Christmas until March 1st, 2024, making them great gifts for your friends, your family, and everyone you know. So go to MyPillow.com and use the promo code Prager or call 1-800-761-6302 and you'll get big discounts on all MyPillow bedding products, including the Giza Dream bed sheets for as low as $29.98 and get all your shopping done now while quantities last. Do I have any other prayer? Of course. I mean, here's the thing. I don't think that is adequate. And and one of the criticisms that that is just pray for your enemies. One of the criticisms of Christianity that I often hear and I have to say it is a very legitimate criticism is that Christianity may not be the best at scaling up. As you just said on a micro level, it's and especially in the West when we're, you know, not battling Hamas every, every day, it in the realm of people, you know, writing a nasty comment to you on the internet, people, a friend betraying you, it, it's a very good framework to deal with those things. But, but yes, we cannot build a society off of turn the other cheek and love the enemy. We have to build a society off of you prosecute and punish the enemy. You levy consequences on the enemy. You give them a fair trial. You get, you know, you treat them fairly within you know the the bounds of of reason but you you don't turn the other cheek so i i hear you on that but i don't i think praying for your enemy doesn't mean that you just pray and then you kind of leave it be i think you can both pray for your enemy and exact consequences so i think you can both pray for hamas 
frankly, I don't know. I think it's kind of a futile effort <laughs> to pray for Hamas because right, but, I don't. But pray that they change, that they yes, repent. Yes, that they change. Right. Do you think that's what Jesus meant? I, I, I'm not saying yes or no. I'm just curious. I think, well, this you may view this as a swerve of your answer, and I sincerely don't mean it to be, but I, I was at. Sincerely. <laughs> I know. You're like, I don't care if it's sincere or not. <laughs> no, no, <that's> <laughs> no, that's funny. Um, I was at, I've been, I've been kind of like religion shopping over the past few months. I'm, I'm open with you and I'm open with the audience about most things, by the way, but on this subject of religion that I would call myself an ethical monotheist, but I don't really know what kind of religious home I have. Um, and so I'm, I'm finding that and I'm just, I'm just trying to learn. And I went to a Catholic church because I was baptized as a Catholic. And I s- spoke to the priest about a situation that I had where someone said very unkind things to me and it hurt me. When, when did you do this? Oh, this was a few months ago. Really? Yeah. I didn't know. I went, I went to mass with a family friend. And then afterwards I went up to the priest. He baptized me and I said, hello, and kind of reintroduced myself. And I've seen him over the years in our town, but I, I asked him for advice on this subject. So for advice or were you in a confessional booth? No, no, I was not in confessional. I've never done confessional. Okay. This was, this was just standing after the, the church service. And I just, I told him. You know him, what it's called by the way? What? It's a sacrament, you know, of, of the Catholic yes. church. But it's not called, it's the Sacrament of Reconciliation. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. I have thoughts on that, by the way, but I digress. Um, so I was I was talking with the, the priest, and I told him about this situation, and he said, predictably, he said, pray for your enemies. And I said, why? And he said, because of what it will do to you. And I thought that was a really interesting answer. Frankly, it kind of surprised me. That this Catholic priest was instructing me to kind of do something for others, i.e., pray for them, because of what it would do for me. But to. But wait, but it, you didn't answer my question. Well, maybe I didn't ask this to you now. I asked it earlier. So when the priest said. Per, okay, I have. Am I interrupting because I have two questions? But if you didn't finish the thought. I'll, I'll just. I, frankly. <laughs> Bingo, Dennis and Julie, I forgot the original question that you had just asked, but I, the point that I'm trying to make is that... Well, uh, we are partially asking, what are you praying for when you pray for your enemies? That That is one of the, the issues on the table. I don't know what, if we move I, on from that. I am... I, I th- I, in that specific case, I prayed for the fact that they would, as I know this sounds very trite, but have their evil and anger that they feel for me and my work to be mitigated and for them to okay not be corrupted right. by such a terrible worldview and way of living so, so that the they Christians, think I'm... the Christians and there were very committed Christians who fought the Nazis and the, and the Japanese fascists in World War II. So when they, a Christian who stormed Normandy Beach yes. to kill Nazis, Mm-hmm. What did it mean to both kill a Nazi and pray for the Nazi? And, and it's not a challenge. But it, I don't it, know if that – I don't know – and you would you would know better than I would because you're far more well-versed in Scripture than I am. But I don't know if it's a binary. I don't know I, if I'm the I'm not saying it is. That's why I'm asking. But, so but I'm, I'm going to was... kill you and I pray for you. But uh, what am I – so that I go back to what am I praying for? 
that you convert, but obviously I'm not giving you the chance. I'm you, killing you. I think when I think in that situation, the person would pray that this would end, and that and that you know their their actions on Normandy Beach would. I I don't know if it's like praying for a specific person, but praying for the enemy, as in the case of of this war and this regime in general. Can he can he pray that uh, you know, oh God, help me kill as many Nazis as possible to stop. The gas chambers and to stop the the torture of I mean, frankly, of, of that's Europeans. something I would have prayed for. Right. Okay. So then, you're not really praying for the Nazis. You're praying to conquer the Nazis, to kill the Nazis. See, look, I want to make something clear to everybody listening. Long, long ago. I realized that I don't have to share all theology with terrific people. Right. This is a really important lesson. I have so imbibed it that it doesn't it doesn't even phase me. But uh, perhaps for others who who Christians who really respect me, and there are many, thank God, and it's mutual. M- my theological questions have nothing to do with my assessment of you magnificent people often who who believe differently than I on this matter. I'm only asking because I want to understand you, not you, Julie, you, right. you, these wonderful people in my life. There are people with whom I share theology and, and I'm not big fans of. It, 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 right. Look, I mean, I'll give an example because it's so, uh, I know how big this is in, in, in many uh, American Protestants' lives. They have a real problem with Mormon theology. And uh, my, I tell them privately, it, it doesn't matter. It, or at least to me, it doesn't matter. I, I, I have a problem with a lot of people's theology, but it doesn't matter because that's not how I assess people even religiously. I assess people religiously by their behavior. And Mormons have made wonderful communities and wonderful families and contributed immensely to this society. Isn't that, that's my bottom line. Yes. Yes. You know, I, I hear you. I really do. And it, that sort of on a, on a bigger scale, what what does it mean to pray for, for instance, the Nazi who you are about to slaughter, and rightfully slaughter in the case in the case of World War Two? Right, mean, in, in, that's right. In that's any what, case, so that's what I'm asking. Right, yeah. Rightful to slaughter a Nazi. But... And does it conflict with praying that I that right. I kill him before he kills me? Right. I hear you on that. That's it's again. I I don't think it's a binary that you know praying for your enemies mean means that you don't exact consequences. But I hear you that. There, that there's this kind of question of like what what does it mean to pray for Hamas or for for you know Hitler? Again, I think on a small on a micro scale, it is a it is a beneficial thing to pray for your enemies or try. And again, this is this is why I brought up the example of the priest at the Catholic Church who said when I asked why for what it will do for you. Again, that answer kind of surprised me. Because it seems like it's not about the other person, but maybe maybe it's not about the other person. Maybe it's more so that you don't become like the other person, you know? Like, right, but I, okay, so there that that's not a, a view I share. Right, but wanting, I think... Wanting the, the evil to be conquered, vanquished, and on 
more than a few occasions killed doesn't make you like them. But here, here's the thing. We're talking about this on, on a huge scale of Hamas, Nazi, you know, evil. That, uh, I hear you. Yes. But oh, on the per- I said I, on, the uh, personal, on the personal, it's a separate issue. How many more pa- yes. How many more children would speak to their parents if they adopted Correct. the prey yes. for not, your parents? Right. Well, all right. So enemy, there's but- an interest. So here, this is really interesting. So that is correct. And my approach is correct. So what do I? What is my message or wish for children who have uh, alienated their parents from, or, or alienated themselves from their parents? They don't speak to them because the parents vote the way they don't want or believe things they don't believe in. Right. Is hello. There is a lo- one of the Ten Commandments. The fundamentals of society is honor your father and mother. And it doesn't have an asterisk only if you agree with them. Right. So, And it's honor, so, not love, as you say. Right. And, and honor is an act. Honor isn't a feeling. Right. There is, right, which is my point. You don't, there is no commandment to love your parents. There is no commandment to have any feeling toward your parents. The only commandment toward parents is behavior. So I have a little bit of an idea of... Judaism and Christianity that I'd like to offer for your and the audience's consideration that that I think deals with this point well. I think that Judaism really complements Christianity and Christianity really complements Judaism because I kind of view like in parenting and you you talk all the time about how teaching your kids self-control is more important than self-esteem, how being a disciplinarian is more important than giving them love. But you do need both. You just, you know, with using the parent analogy, you need to discipline your kids and you need to love them. And if I look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, I kind of look at them as like the, the two counterparts. The Old Testament is more here are here's kind of the the harsh rules of life. I think as we were talking about uh, Nazism and what what does it mean to pray for, you know, the Nazis you're about to, to slaughter storming Normandy Beach, I thought about the, what is it? You you would probably know it by heart. Chapter 14 or 15 of Genesis when Abraham b- bargains God down. With Sodom fifth, and Gomorrah. With Sodom and Gomorrah. Right. Where God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because it's an evil place. And Abraham says, right what if, if there are 50, 50 righteous, righteous 40, people, 30, 20, 10. And they get back down 10. Yes. You know, that's a practical, you learn from the Old Testament, okay, there are going to be some cases where some innocent, righteous people are going to have to suffer or, you know, be slaughtered for the greater good of eliminating this evil town. I really love those, those again, realistic principles in the Old Testament that are outlined. The New Testament, I think, is such a beautiful thing because although I, I'm an Old Testament junkie, I love so many of the stories in the Old Testament, there is no story that is more powerful than the story of Christ to me and the example that it is such a moving, beautiful, powerful story of God loving humanity enough to come down in human form, walk alongside us, suffer alongside us, be treated unjustly, you know, alongside us to heal the sick, to help the poor. And we need that example. That's why I think they complement each other so nicely because the Christianity can get to, grace and mercy and pray and love and you need the kind of harshness of the old testament but the harshness of the old testament needs the grace and mercy and example of christ 
And so I I know that religion, you can't cherry pick. I understand that. And frankly, again, in the spirit of honesty, that's a battle that I'm kind of having right now because I – when I choose a religion, when I choose a denomination, I I don't want to just buy it hook, line, and sinker, but I want to – I'm I'm not just – in other words, I'm I'm not just going to cherry pick from it. I want to really understand and practice it in its entirety. But – if I can cherry pick for a moment, I do think we can take the pray for your enemies part of Christianity and balance it with the exact. Do you know who exacting, cherry picked? The who? founders of the United yes, States. Yes, they did. It's a very good This is point. the one Judeo-Christian country that was truly ever founded. These were Christians steeped in the Old Testament. The, As I've said thousand times probably, the only thing on the Liberty Bell is from the Torah the uh, Harvard, when in its better days, <laughs> uh, you had to study Hebrew to get a BA till 1800. No Ye- way. Yale, yes. Yale, wow. Yale's insignia is in Hebrew. I know. So is, it, so is uh, oh no, it's in it, Latin. No, right. is in and, Latin. And this, uh, John Adams said, the people who have most civilized humanity are the Hebrews. We, it, it, The quotes from the founders with regard to what the Jews have done uh, Jefferson and and uh, and Franklin were not even traditional Christians. They didn't believe in the Trinity. They, they were certainly steeped as cultural Christians. They wanted the great seal of the United States to picture, to depict. They even designed it. You could see it on the internet. The Jews leaving Egypt. The Israelites leaving Egypt. The Israelites left Egypt. America le- leaves Europe. That was the analogy. Mm. This wow. this is this has been the Christians of America have largely been Judeo Christians. Yes, that's why Jews. My whole, is another battle of my life. Well, it was battle number one uh, against the the secularization of society. I, I've Jews who thought they'll be more secure the more secular America is, which a lot of Jews have believed, were foolish beyond words. The reason Jews have had it uniquely good in America is because the Christians of America were so Judeo in their Christianity. Yes. And so, as I put it in, in my in my column, which anyone can see, in, in including in Jewish journals, not, not just in the regular press, mm-hmm. is when Christians went to church, when Americans went to church, Jews were more secure. So you, your cherry pick is, is possible. The, the taking from both is a great idea. Well, that's why I I call myself an ethical monotheist when people ask me, you know, what religion are you? I go, well, I'm an ethical monotheist because I truly consider myself, at least right now in my life, to be Judeo and Christian. Right, so you could even go further. I'm, I'm an ethical monotheist and Bible-based. Yes. Well, so let me ask you this question because, again— as I said, I really believe that Judaism and Christianity complement each other. And they're, they're the defects of Christianity, I think Judaism makes up for, and the defects of Judaism Christianity makes up for. One of the things that I think is so incredible about Christianity is that when you have nowhere else to go, when you feel like you have really gone down a bad path in life and you have, you know— you've sinned and you you feel like you're a bad person and you're defective, you can go and, as the Christians say, lay that at Christ's feet. 
and you can be redeemed. And it's this I kind agree of with you. it's this that amazing it is a beautiful thing. It is an amazing thing that that you can go from the dregs of humanity and if you if you believe in Christ and you seek that out according to that faith like in I'm thinking in terms of paintings in Botticelli's Nativity there's um there's an image of these angels taking men literally grabbing them and hoisting them up from this uh, ground where demons are trying to grab them. And that's how I view Christianity. Like you, you can be being dragged down in the mud and you can be redeemed and saved and forgiven. That is amazing because we, if there's one thing about human nature that I've observed is that sometimes when you think I've, I've, I've done poorly your instinct is not to go, why don't I make it better? Your instinct is to go, well, I've already messed up. I might as well, you know, really say F it and continue into the drags. I mean, I even notice this or when there's, I... there's no hope for me. There's no hope for me. I notice this when I eat. I know that's on a really small scale. If I, you know, have a big dessert meal, I'll think, oh God, well, I just ruined my whole diet today or I just ruined my whole exercise. Well... Screw it. I'm going to go eat another cake and then I'm going to have cupcake. That's that's kind of the human mindset. Well, I've already done wrong. I might as well just indulge. And Christianity moves you away from that. Is there a counterpart to that in Judaism? Is there a story or a kind of tenet of the theology that expresses that in the same way that Christianity does? Yes. Uh, and I'll give you examples. It's not as immediate or as central, perhaps, as it is in Christianity. I mean, you could literally step forward and accept Christ that afternoon, and that happens. Mm -hmm. And it does, and it does. It changes. I know that people have changed. Right. I was with a cab driver like 35 years ago in some southern city, and I, I love talking to strangers, and I was talking to him about his life, and he said, ah, you know, he was about 50-something years old, uh, and he was way older than me. And the uh, the point he was making was, oh, I, 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 read a, I led a terrible life. I, you know, it was drugs and sex and, and, um, and, and alcohol. I said, and... What turned you around? It was Christ. Hmm. And I believed it. And this Jew knew he was telling me the truth. There was not a doubt in my mind that the man was telling me the truth. This Christmas, the new film from director George Clooney arrives. It's a rag-to-riches absolute crowd-pleaser based on the number one New York Times bestselling book. The inspirational true story about one of the most difficult sports in the world and the 1936 University of Washington college rowing team that competed for gold at the Summer Games in Berlin. It will inspire you. This team rowed out of need. Need to eat, need to sleep. And it gave them an edge that captures the power of working together to overcome all odds while rowing for America. They don't make movies like this anymore, and it's filled with wholesome content that makes it the ideal multi-generational movie for the holidays. Joel Edgerton and Callum Turner star in this exciting and incredible story of courage, hard work, and determination showcasing America at its best. Believe in each other. Believe in the impossible. The Boys in the Boat opens Christmas Day in theaters only. Get tickets now. Boys in the Boat Movie dot com. 
has Judaism turned people around? There's no question. But it's it's sort of a more laborious process. You 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 know what is it? Uh, the, the one of the most famous stories in the Talmud, which is the the, the great book after the Bible in Judaism. So a a pagan comes to two different rabbis, Hillel and Shammai, two giants who always disagreed with each other. And he goes, so... As you say, that's a mitzvah. Well, it's certainly, I would say, it, it's, uh, it's, it's central to Judaism that you could differ and, and, and both be right in certain ways. They're both speaking the words of the living God. That's the motto. It's a beautiful motto. Anyway, so he asks, he goes to Rabbi Shammai and Rabbi Hillel, th- different homes, and he goes, uh, so what, tell me, explain to me Judaism while standing on one foot. And so uh, Shammai actually hits him with a stick and says, what, are you kidding? I can't explain Judaism standing on one foot. Get out of here. Which is not, not, a, not impressive, I must say, but the Talmud records everything that the people said. Goes to Hillel's house, and Hillel says, sure, I'll tell you. Do not do to others what you do what what you don't want done to you, or do not do what is hateful to you. Do not do to to uh, to others. The rest is commentary. Now go and study. It's a very famous three part answer. The essence is ethical behavior. The rest is commentary. Now go and study. It's a great answer for Jews anyway. But in other words. You, you can't do it if you don't study. You can't just change overnight like that. That, that, that immediacy that I'm talking about, which ha- does happen to people in accepting Christ, I have no doubt about it, like this cab driver. But you're, you're right, that is not the, the mode of, of Jewish expression as much. I do want to tell you, though, you... you <laughs> I marvel at you so often, and it, and it brings me incredible joy that you're you're in my life, as you know. Your your understanding of that that the two religions need each other, oh, of course, is very few people. Well, a lot of Christians realize it. I don't think as many Jews do, though. I, I I've tried to teach Jews this this great combination, this Judeo-Christian. There is a rabbi who wrote in the Times of Israel a piece. This is a nonsense term, Judeo-Christian values. By the way, a lot of Christians do that. I know. Oh, so but, but there, there are just as many voices on both sides who don't like that term. And, and I and disagree. And the libs hate it. Huh? The libs hate it. Oh, yeah, of course. Well, they when hate I would it because they, they hate both. Yes, they hate <laughs> yeah, both. Right. But, but it, it was, by the way, I looked up this rabbi. I always do that. I'm very curious because I'm almost always right. When they have a position that I consider truly absurd, they will have absurd positions on everything. <laughs> Very few people only have one absurd position. To deny that there are Judeo-Christian values is absurd. It it's is. just absurd. Uh, th- th- there isn't Judeo-Christian theology, but nobody uses that term. But there are Judeo-Christian values. And sure enough, the guy turns out to be this a, a big leftist on every single issue. On every on trans on right. on on global warming on every it's he's consistent along the line, but uh, I, I I'll give you an example you wouldn't know of the of where they you hinted at it but unless 
you know, you, I'm, you're not as steeped in Judaism, obviously, as I am. So Not yet. Right. You will be. God bless you. And so Judaism is, is both particular and universal because it's the, the chosen people. God chose the Jews and so on. But the whole point is that through you, will the, all the families of the earth will be blessed, as God says to Abraham. Judaism is both. Mm-hmm. Christianity gave, gave gave up ethnicity, gave up peoplehood. There's no such thing as a Christian people. There was a Jewish people, a Jewish nation, but there's no such thing as a Christian nation, Christian people. There's a Christian religion, and and so it the they Judaism needs the universal mission of Christianity, and Christianity needs to be rooted. In, in in a people, and I'll give you one dramatic example. Oh well, I, I said I, you, I knew, there couldn't have been a way you you would have thought of this. I have to have lived this uh, as I have, but I'll give you a very dramatic example. I got started in public life speaking for Soviet Jewry because Israel sent me into the Soviet Union when I was twenty one. I knew Russian and Hebrew and and, and Judaism, and so they, the, miraculously, the Foreign Office learned about me through friends in Israel. And anyway, I was sent to the Soviet Union for a month. I came back to the United States and began lecturing three, four times a week about the plight of Soviet Jewry. At the time, virtually every synagogue in America had a sign in the front, Save Soviet Jewry. Now, here you will find, this will, I know you. When you learn, you get excited. Oh, it's, it's thrilling. You will find this fascinating. Virtually every synagogue, reform, conservative, orthodox, had a sign, Save Soviet Jewry, in the front of the synagogue. I don't remember a single church that had Save Soviet Christians, even though Christians were hurt more than Jews in the Soviet Union. It's a very important point. Yes. It's because there's no Christian peoplehood. Mm. So you you see the the point of life. This is true for all of life. You, you pay a balance. price for for your blessings. It is a blessing, the universality of Christianity. Right. But a price was paid, because Christians don't, generally speaking, don't care about fellow Christians as much as Jews care about fellow Jews. That's why I like to cherry pick. Which, which your, I little, said you should. I know. I know. And and your that, whole... yeah, that I did. Yeah. Yes, and you're and one of the things, as I often say, I love about the introduction of your Bible commentary is that it's not proselytizing. You say, I'm not trying to make you a Jew. I'm not trying to make you a Christian. What I hope is that you will be an ethical monotheist. You will be someone right. who— The God of yes. the Bible, the God of the Torah is is the person or the, or the creature, the being you should follow. You know, the other day I was on the phone with someone who asked me— who is the religious figure who you most admire? And I thought that was an interesting question. And I went through and, and I realized that there are many figures in the Old Testament who I, who I admire, but they're not perfect figures. And that's part of what makes them great and, and real. You know, Noah, for instance, as, as you often comment, was, was chosen by God to be saved from the flood because he was the most righteous in his generations. Doesn't mean he was the most righteous person to ever walk God's green earth, but he was the most righteous at his time. There are things that I admire about Abraham, 
But Abraham is not always the most perfect figure. You know, I mean, I, I know that he had no choice but to sleep with a with Hagar, the slave, because his wife was barren. Well, but... yeah, well, that, that concubine was a common thing then. But, right. but I mean, but... look, people have problems with his lying about his relationship to Sarah. Exactly. Maybe he was right, maybe he was wrong, but and he's give not you, perfect. I'll give you a, a controversial one that's, I say controversial, it's only controversial to the religious. The secular listening, the secular person listening to this is going to be like, how is this controversial? But I... I kind of take issue with with Abraham adhering to God, God or the angels called to bind Isaac. I don't know if I admire that. I, I, that was a test, and I'm not so sure that he did the right thing. Maybe the test was designed for him to say, no, there I'm are, not going to do right. that. That's right. You, are, you so, will not be alone in thinking that. Right. So um, the point is, when that person asked me this question about who I admire, there were individuals who had actions in the Old Testament who I admired that that I admired. But of course, the the person that stood out to me as the as the be all end all who I would model myself after is Christ. And again, I think this is where they complement each other because religion can't just have perfect figures all the time. It would it would render religion well, useless we, we and can't be mystical perfect. we can't be perfect we need to see we need to see ourselves in the the scripture we need we need to see barrenness we need to see temptation we need to see rage we need we need to see that but also we do need a perfect figure in in religion who we can model ourselves after and that's what i think is is so great about christianity i recently had an experience uh with Dr. Bob Hamilton. I feel comfortable saying his his name, um, though maybe maybe he wouldn't want me <laughs> do it, doing it on the air. Well, he, the only reason he might not want you is because of of Christian sin of pride. So he oh. would he would be feel guilty that he was being praised so highly, and he especially by, would by both of us. Yes, I adore him as much as you do. Well, he he was at a Shabbat dinner recently. Um, one of one of our Shabbat dinners. It's amazing. I call it all uh, our Shabbat dinners. I feel our, kind of wrong saying it. that, but it, but it. they're so my. They feel are, so much like my family. That's right. That I I feel comfortable saying that. Anyway, he and his lovely wife were there, and they have they have six children and probably fifty grandchildren, and they're committed Christians, and they're just they are just salted the earth people. Anyway, Doctor Bob is a pediatrician, and he was kind enough to invite me to shadow him for a day at his office. Now, people listening may may be thinking, why would What's the reason for that? I I'm, I'm, have no connection to the medical field, but he just wanted me to learn. And he took me to the NICU unit, uh, the neonatal um, ICU unit at St. John's Hospital in, Saint, in Santa Monica and another hospital. And we looked at these, you know, like five-pound um, premature babies. It, it was just – we could do a whole Dennis and Julie episode on what I observed there and what I learned. But as we were walking back to his office after seeing those little – NICU babies, I asked him because he's so, he's so loving to everyone, but you just, you really see his, his sense of duty shine through when he's holding these children and trying to care for them. And I said, Dr. Bob, what animates you? What, you know, what motivates you to do what you do? And he said a very simple answer. I try to serve as Christ served. I have the chills because I know it's true. It's true. This man goes to the some of the poorest places on earth and does free medical work. And, and how, how many people do that? 
and it's because it's because of that example. We need that perfect, the, uh, glorious okay. example. We're, no, no, that it's a it works. See that my my question going back to the beginning because we're nearing the end. If if X produces a Bob Hamilton, X must be pretty damn impressive. Yes. And that has been my view of so many American Christians. And I always say American because Europe's Christians were, were less Judeo and less noble. I mean, just, I mean, they, they forget that they, forget the Holocaust, which was not done by Christians, but it was observed by Christians, let's put it that way. Uh, but they killed each other. I mean, Catholics and, and Protestants slaughtered each other over theology. That's what's really mind-blowing. Yeah. Not about ethics, over theology. So, but in America, we've had a, a very remarkable, again, Judeo-Christian, and and so a lot of people that I've known would have given his his answer, and that's very powerful. And there, by the way, there there are Jews I mean, who 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 devote their lives to others, uh, and who and they're animated, uh, obviously, by something Jewish. Mm-hmm. But it is interesting, and this, I'm smiling because it uh, it's a very touchy subject, but I'm okay with that. There is no question that having a human, and and Christ is human and divine, Right, he came as a human, obviously. Uh, is a powerful motivator, and the way I know that, interestingly, is aside from all my Christian friends, is from some of the people I most admire who do incredibly selfless work in Judaism, Chabad, these Orthodox Jews who have. Chabad houses all over the world. I mean, literally all over the world. I visited Chabad houses in Japan and Cambodia and Morocco, and they have one in Congo. I mean, they're they're all they're in all fifty states. They're 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 everywhere. They've even opened the Chabad in Gaza, which, which is just to serve. <laughs> I'm sorry, come again? Yes, I know Chabad ten, in yes, Gaza. Yeah, yeah. I just saw the sign. It, it, it's half serious <laughs> and and half light, but they wanted to service the troops with. For Hanukkah, I mean, it, it, wow. but they are animated not only by the Torah, not only by Judaism, not only by Jewish law, but by their Rebbe, hmm. the the great Rabbi Menachem Schneerson, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the, the 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 great, probably the greatest Jewish figure of the twentieth century. Now, obviously, he's he's not Jesus. In, in, in Judaism or, or for them, but he has a status that is that is above the normal human for them. And I see how animating he is. These people, at the age of 25, a young Chabad guy and his wife, because you can't go as a single guy, you have to be married, will, will open up a Chabad house, let us say, in Pierre, South Dakota where there are virtually no Jews, or even more amazing, in Cambodia. And they will live there till they die. 
I mean, that is an incredible commitment mm-hmm. to leave the world you know completely and, and just serve people in that area. But the animation is not just God. It is not just the Torah. It is the Rebbe, that, that figure. Yes. So I, I get it when, you, when, you, when he says, I want to serve like Christ served, quoting Bob Hamilton. Yep. That is a powerful force. Well, I'll leave, I'll, again, I know that we're, we're close to the end, but I'll leave you with two thoughts. First, as you know, and many of the listeners know, I have a sister with very severe autism who has lived in group homes for about a decade now. Um, she lived at home and then she went to a school in Massachusetts and then she's lived in group homes for about a decade. And she, we've had horrible problems with her care. And people have asked me, is there a, you know, a theme like with what constitutes a good caretaker and the, and the bad caretaker? And it's, it's really not so much a divide by race or by gender. It's a divide between religious and non-religious. That's right. The best, best, That's best correct. caretaker and it is right. who serves my sister is a devoutly committed Christian. Yes, I would like to ask people, if you had a sister yes. like Julie does, yep. uh, who could not uh, in any way defend herself, no, can't even all. complain, doesn't speak, and you you know I have I have two caretakers for you. What is an, uh, one is completely irreligious and one goes to church every Sunday. Would you flip a coin? Yes. It's, it, honestly, I, I should use it and you should use it. Well, you should especially... Because you have the answer. Yes. That's the first thing. And the second thing is when Dr. Bob said that to me, it it just hit me like a lightning bolt. And I thought, you know, because as I've said on the show, I don't quite know what I believe. I, I, I believe in Christ and that he walked this earth and was a remarkable human being. I don't know if I believe in the resurrection. I don't know. I'm truly kind of in question mark land. And I'm not afraid to admit that. But I thought, you know what, Julie, you don't need to believe in Christ right now to learn from Christ and to try to embody his his actions. And so I went home after he said that, and I started reading more of the, the New Testament and reading the passages of, of him touching the sick and healing the sick. It made such an impression on me. And two days ago, I was driving in Los Angeles, and I saw this mother and a daughter, four-year-old daughter, by the side of the freeway, they were homeless, holding up a sign, asking for help. And I thought, serve them as Christ would serve them. And this is someone who doesn't, again, know if they believe in the, in the, in the divinity of Christ. But I, I said to myself, serve them as Christ would serve them. And I went home, and I got some leftover food, and I made a care package. I got in my car. I parked it. I drove over there. And, I, and it was nighttime, and I was a little afraid because this is a freeway underpass, and there are these tents, and there are kind of weird, drugged-out people walking around. But this poor mother and her little girl were sitting there, and I and I was afraid, and I just kept saying to myself, serve as Christ would serve, serve as Christ would serve. And I walked up to them, and I gave them food, and I put my hands on them, and I rubbed the woman's back, and I wanted to go, I'm touching you. I I. I care for you. You're a human being. I'm not going to drop the food and run away. I asked for their names. I, you know, got down, crouched, and talked with the little girl. And she, they were both so grateful 
that little girl, she was so excited. She gave me this big smile, and she has, she has terrible teeth. And I went back today, and I got them a toothbrush and toothpaste. But the whole the point of my telling this story is what gave me the courage and the conviction to do that was to serve as Christ serves. And the final thing I will say is shame on anyone, especially on the left, who disparages this. Shame on them. They can disagree with it. They can highlight parts of it that don't make sense to them. They can disparage certain, you know, actions in in Christianity. You can criticize it, but shame on the people who call this an antiquated, stupid religion. Shame on them. The amount of good that it has done in the world, the amount that it, it inspires people to go outside of their boundaries in service of others, that is never something to be disparaged. Goodbye. Shalom. It, it, it made me so angry that people would, would, would try to tear down and smear something that has produced such goodness. You don't have to agree with it, but don't you dare try to knock this down. You should be encouraging it in other people. Okay, now I'm really done. <laughs> Though I could go on and on. That was beautiful. Well, you often say the most beautiful ending, so I'm glad to have done that today. Do you notice that? You, you, you have these endings in Dennis and Julie that are mic drop moments. You can reach me at julie at julie-hartman.com. I love hearing from you, especially when you start the email with shalom and end it with shalom. And you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at julie r. Hartman. You can follow Dennis on Instagram at the Dennis Prager. And what's your Twitter? Is it at Dennis Prager? Follow me at dennisprager.com is the best place. Yes, dennisprager.com. And we thank you so much for being here. Merry almost Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. And let's serve as Christ served. Bye, everybody. Shalom. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.